This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They had a say. It wasn't us coming in and saying, we have the answer. Get out of the way. We're going to do this for you. It was, hey, let's come up with a solution together. We say Tamika Pomoja in Swahili, which basically means uh, let's work together on this. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend, Justin Wren. He's an MMA athlete who fights for the forgotten. That's literally the name of his charity. He's made a family of pygmies enslaved in the Congo. I didn't even know that those were a real thing until he told me and showed me on YouTube. He's buying them land with his fight purse winnings and drilling wells in the jungle so they can have clean water. And his own story of coming back from addiction-induced retirement and finding purpose in helping others is not only inspiring, but super interesting. I'm really glad to have you here with us for this episode of the show. And by the way, if you're new to The Art of Charm, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox. That's where we study the science of people and discuss things like reading body language and having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, social engineering, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. Check that out at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox or in our iPhone app, at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone. Also at theartofcharm.com, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. We're glad to have you with us here today at AOC, and enjoy this episode with Justin Wren. Well, thanks for coming out, by the way. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah. This is awesome. Yeah, I mean, you really do fight for the forgotten, and we can talk about that in a bit, but I watched the fight this morning which is, it's weird watching MMA in the morning. I don't know what it, it's kind of like having a beer in the morning. Yeah. You're like, I don't know, it feels too early for this somehow. It's like, I'm eating oatmeal and watching you just nail this guy with pink hair in the back of the head over and over and over. The commentator said, this is a far more aggressive Justin Wren than we have seen. Mm. So were you not as aggressive before? Because I feel like the line between not aggressive and aggressive in MMA has to be pretty fine. Yeah. So I had taken five years and two months off from the sport. So I started fighting professionally at 19 years old, did really well. And I was always that guy that you saw this last fight that you just watched. So I was always more aggressive. But then coming back after the layoff, it was a learning process because I had had five years off. The muscle memory was gone. There was ring rust. And um, I was just trying to win. What's ring rust? That sounds, I mean, it's probably what it sounds like, but yeah, explain that. Ring rust is probably where just there's the loss of muscle memory and just everything's a little slower and you're trying to work out the kinks and get back in it. You know, these competitive fighters are fighting two, three times a year, sometimes four, and then they're training five, six days a week, two to three times a day. And so that muscle memory is just firing. And then when you come back after a long layoff, even a year is a long layoff and I had five years off. 
So most guys is, don't come back. After yeah, five it years sounds off. like you retired and then just unretired versus right. taking a break in your training. Yeah, absolutely. And so coming back and then those five years off, I wasn't training at all. I was going back and forth to Congo, living there for a year, and I rushed back. I mean, I had basically six weeks of a fight camp to get ready for a professional fight again on a big stage. I tried to outbox the boxers, and I'm a ground guy. I'm a wrestler and a jiu-jitsu guy next. And so I was striking with these guys that grew up striking, and I had to beat them at their own game. And so the aggressive part, trying to beat a guy at his own game, if I made a mistake, you're going to pay for it, especially at the heavyweight division. So uh, anyways, I got back to my roots, and it just started to flow again. So you kind of slip back from unconscious competence. Things are firing automatic because you've trained so much versus ring rust situation where you go, all right, you're sort of thinking about a plan at some point instead of just going on, I don't know, animal instinct that's been beaten into you literally in the in the dojo or the training arena. Yeah, absolutely. And what was really great this last time was I was really able to focus. We have a team around us now. And so I'm able to do what I need to do in the gym. And the first two fights back, I was writing a book. The second one, we were doing a documentary. I was spreading myself too thin and not being able to focus in the fight game like I should. That can be very dangerous for a fighter. Yeah, it seems like you can only do one job when your job is to not get hit or hit somebody else more slash harder than they hit you. You should probably try to specialize in one thing. The commentators also were saying things like, this is the fastest he's started. And uh, think about the pressure involved in that. Every dollar goes towards a cause you've devoted your life to. And I kind of was hoping you weren't actually thinking about that in the moment, because it seems like during the fight, you might get a little bit of motivation thinking, wow, I better win because if I win, I can drill five wells or something like that. But at the same time, you kind of wouldn't want to be thinking, I better win because I can drill five wells when you should be maybe not thinking about anything. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, the first fight back, having a short fight camp and then having that pressure and that weight, knowing this time I'm fighting for a real reason, for a cause, for people, for, for yeah, to drill wells, to knock out the water crisis. That's what I want to do. And so I had that weight on my shoulders. And this last time, this third fight back, man, I just felt like that weight was lifted off of me. I just need to go in there, do what I love, perform at a high level. And if I can't do that, if I can't prove that to myself on the third time, I can still hang with these guys. And not just that, I can outpace them. I can outwork them. I can put them away. I can finish. Instead of going to the scorecards, the decisions, letting the judges decide, I need to put this guy away. And so it was just great to have that feeling back. You know, hey, I'm back. So Yeah, it's got to be a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And it seems like that would be useful during training when it's like, oh, I really want to mail it in for the last couple sprints because I'm tired. And it's like, okay, push yourself because of the, think of the pygmies or whatever. Right. But in in the fight itself, it's like just that stuff probably needs to be packed away and you've got to rely on your training. Otherwise, there's just too much going on upstairs. Yeah, you're right about that. But I also like pressure. I thrive normally under pressure. The first two, they just weren't ideal circumstances for a professional fight and fighter, the training that I was getting in. So having it all, knowing I was able to go in with so much more confidence knowing that, hey, I do have the reason and the purpose and the passion, but I also have the training to back it, the skill set to back it, and I put in the time and effort and hard work. And so almost as a fighter, you need to stack up the chips and stack the deck in your favor. So that way, you know, going in there, like when the going gets tough and you have to dig deep because you're pushing this guy, he's pushing you, you're each trying to break each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've got to have more things that I can pull out of my hat and or pull out of my heart, my fighter's heart and say like, I deserve this win. I put in the work, like not just the cause because that's not going to win you a fight. Like I put in the work too to back it up. Do your emotions ever get in the way and or help during a fight? And you see in movies, stupid stuff like 
think about the reason for this. And it's like, well, is that just Hollywood or are you really thinking about the cause at some point when you feel like if I get punched one more time, I'm going down? Or is that just all something that gets in the way and is extraneous by that point? During the fight, I'm not actually thinking about it, but before the fight, it helps me get more motivated. And so I, even my walkout song is some of the pygmy music from the forest in the Congo, Yeah, which uh, nobody else probably gets and probably wonders what, what in the heck is that. It sounds like this kind of yodeling and tribal music, and I know the sounds and I know who they are. So that pumps me up. It gets me excited. But once I'm in there, I'm there to do a job. I got to win. And when I get to win, I get to talk about the cause then. So before I'll do it, but during the fight, put that all on the shelf. Yeah. And then after the fight, get right back to it. What is that instrument? I saw that in one of the videos that you have in the pygmy camp. It looks like a guitar, but there's like a curved branch coming out of it with little knots. And it's almost like a weird guitar slash harp. Yeah. What's that thing? If I can remember back to that specific instrument, and they're so ingenious and innovative and they can make things from nothing. The kids are carving, you know, uh, while we're out there with our truck, they're carving out of wood trucks with our symbols and and <laughs> our logo and everything on it. So they, they can do so much great stuff. Uh, this instrument was half of a bow and arrow that broke. And then they used one of our spare tires, one of our tires that blew out. And then they ripped the rubber apart and got the metal like strings that line inside the tires so that they can make guitar strings. Wow. Out. And then I think it was a uh, coffee can also. There's resonance from the strings, right? Right. That's incredible because yeah. it sounds pretty good sounds for pretty something good. that is made out of an old tire and some sticks, yeah. essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. It was interesting to watch these guys and the whole village. And you showed these nail knives oh, yeah. where I guess they're taking a metal nail and hammer it down and it looks like a pocket knife. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so, so cool. impressive. Yeah, it's awesome, man. That's Chief Leo May. I love that dude. And yeah, he goes out there and there's a lot of illegal deforestation out there. Mm -hmm. He'll see like a ladder and he'll find some uh, nails, pull them out of the ladder after they're done logging. And then he makes mm -hmm. them nice for the village. Do they just figure this stuff out? I wondered where they got metal in the middle of the jungle. That explains it. But how do you know, oh, I can hammer this down and make a knife out of it? Yeah, I think they just learn from what they need and what they see. And so originally their best arrows that they have, uh, now they use scrap metal to make some metal tipped arrows, but they'll sit there and ask you, you know, which one would you use on a bird and which one would you use on an antelope or mm -hmm. a wild hog? And they have this one that's just sharpened wood and they have one with the wicked looking, I don't know, scrap metal ones that they made and it looks sharp. It's bigger, heavy duty. And that's what we know here. So I'm like, oh, you use that one for the bigger one and use the little one for the bird. And they're like, uh, uh, because on the uh, the one that we sharpen, we put poison on that. And so mm. they mash up these roots and these berries and these leaves that are all poisonous and make this like black tar kind of looking stuff. And that's what's at the tip of their arrow. And so over the years, they just found out the perfect mixture from the different things. That's wild. That right there. That's crazy. I, I saw when they're walking through the jungle and they have, I guess it's like a, a root net that they use to hunt. Mm, yeah. Net made out of roots. Right. And they're carrying it on their head. And then he's got that spear with that flayed metal tip. And I thought, if I ran into that guy in the jungle, I would be, I mean, if I'm already in the jungle alone, there's a problem, but I would be <laughs> freaking tripping out. It's the stuff of nightmares, except then you see them laughing and having fun. So it kind of cures that whole thing. But it, yeah. they look really scary. I mean, it looks just like you would imagine some tribal folks who don't have a lot of other Western contact. And we'll, link, right. we'll embed some of these videos in the show notes oh, so people cool. can see what's going on there. Yeah, but absolutely. It is. Are you using just your iPhone or a GoPro or something in the jungle there to film everything? Yeah, normally it was my iPhone. And then once there was like a little short film made of what we were doing, <laughs> uh, people called for it to be a documentary and we threw it up on Kickstarter and got it funded. Wow. And uh, yeah, so now we've been filming over the last three years 
having a documentarian named Derek Watson. He's an Emmy award-winning filmmaker, did a documentary with Forrest Whitaker. And so it's just really cool to see what it's turned into from a couple of iPhone videos to then a GoPro to now like this professional being able to come in. And, and really he's developed a deep relationship with the people learning their story. Like with my book, it was my attempt to give them a voice. That was my first promise to the chief. He asked, we don't have a voice. Can you help us have one? So I said, yeah. And so then when the book happened, that was my attempt. But now video or the documentary, that's going to be them having their own voice, telling their own story. So I'm just so stoked about that. What's the dance that you do after the fight? That's related to the pygmy stuff. <laughs> I mean, I saw that and I thought, okay, if you don't know he's doing a pygmy thing, and they call you the big pygmy, actually, right. if you don't know that he's doing a pygmy dance, you might think, what the hell is this guy doing? It's like dancing in the end zone. Right. Except looks like a little person dance because of how <laughs> close the foot movements are. But you're the, how, how big are you? How tall are you? Uh, I'm six foot three. Yeah, so six three. So you're about yeah. twice the size of probably a pygmy. Right. I the guess. average men's height is only four foot seven. Out wow. There. Yeah. So they're they're a bunch of little dudes with great big hearts. And yeah, those little footsteps and everything without of that. Hell, maybe it's because they're smaller guys. Maybe they have kind of this little conga line or conga line, I guess. But uh, yeah. the men and the women are in their separate lines, and the men are over there, and that's just the dance that they do with uh, around the fire. And we'll embed the fight video from Bellator in the show notes. I think even during your victory speech, you said, I hope that doesn't look cocky. It's a pygmy dance. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was I, like, what are you doing? The first two, I didn't have anything to dance. Uh, first two comeback fights, I, I didn't have anything to dance about. You know, as a decision. I had to wait for the judge's decision. Once you finish a guy, yeah, I called for a little celebration or dance. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Why did you start fighting in the first place? Oh, I started fighting because I grew up actually getting really heavily bullied. I take it you were not six foot three with a Viking appearance. No, and during that was that my time. former fight name was the Viking. The Vi I can see that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It so, does match better than Big Pygmy, but <laughs> you're you know right. you got to roll with the current branding. Yeah, it was something that I wanted to do since I was thirteen years old. It was something that actually kind of gave me hope when I was going through a lot of the bullying. I know a lot of people get bullied, and and I really feel for them. I think it's made me even more compassionate person growing up that sure, way. Sure, I would imagine. Or it would make you a bully as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have you know that crossroads that you come to. Well, now you've got the best of both worlds because you can help the pygmies, and you can also beat people up when you want to. You can <laughs> right. just sort of flip between those two things as therapy calls right. for. Yeah, well, I just remember, <laughs> <laughs> I just remember sitting at the lunch table sometimes all by myself and getting pelted in the back of the head with like chocolate milk spit wads and Gross. Name, names being thrown at me and uh, going to the high school homecoming thinking that, uh, or actually middle school, thinking that, uh, you know, this date said yes to me and I get there and it was actually, she was going with another guy named uh. Justin. And a guy came up there and took her away or, yeah, I have this one time in eighth grade where this girl named Jennifer, she asked me to come to her birthday party and... I knew that she loved Transformers and that her dad worked at Dr. Pepper and their house was even decorated with Dr. Pepper stuff. Oh, wow. And so I made myself head to toe into a Dr. Pepper Transformer. So romantic. Cardboard boxes, right? <laughs> Just a young, dumb kid that wanted to impress this girl that was my crush. I got their duct tape. I was from a country town, like kids in the country. So we seem to use duct tape a lot. Yeah. So yeah, I made that, went there, went to the backyard. And whenever I got there, the whole, all the cool kids were there waiting. And I got met with a couple of flashes of light and people laughing. And it was a big setup. It wasn't a costume party at all. It was just for me seeing if I would come. Oh no, um, that's yeah. so awful. Yes. Yeah, Jennifer said, I can't believe you thought you were cool enough to come to my party. What a, uh, yeah. <laughs> then, Jennifer. Yeah. And then one of the guys said, you know what? You're worthless. I felt worthless. And another guy said, you should just kill yourself. That no. was the, 
That's terrible. Yeah. So at 13 years old, you believe the things people say about you. So I felt worthless. I actually went into this like spiraling depression that I was even clinically diagnosed with depression from the doctor. And so that was tough for me. But when I found the UFC, I was 13. I was walking around this like flea market. There's like some used VHS tapes. Yeah, I was going to say you're 13. How old are you now? Uh, 29. Yeah, so I'm 37, but even then, UFC was maybe available on VHS somehow, yeah. maybe. Whenever I found it, it was actually illegal on pay-per-view. They had banned it because it had been advertised as a blood sport and as human cockfighting and right. as the modern-day gladiators and no rules. You know, anything goes. Right, uh, that was... Groin shots were legal. Yeah, I remember when I first started watching it, it was also VHS. This is probably the 2000, 2001, or maybe right. even 2003. And they were like, oh, yeah, no fish hooking because, yeah, you just don't come back from that. It's right. quite the same. No, no eye gouging. No, no eye gouging. Right. No, yeah. the rules. no biting, no eye gouging, and no fish hooking yeah, because you just rules. can't compete against. The three rules. Again. Groin strikes were all right. Yeah, it's just, I remember thinking... <laughs> There's kind of no way to get around that because if you just can rail someone in the balls over and over and over, it's yeah. going to be a short fight, even if you have a cup. Yeah, there was actually a fight. I think if they, someone YouTubes it, just it's uh, Joe Son, and uh, he fought in there and he took like 20 groin shots in a row, just absolutely brutal from, I think, Keith Hackney. Mm. And uh, that was on one of those VHS tapes that I bought. And, and you're like, I got to do this. <laughs> Well, it hurts less than (laughs) being dressed up as a transformer and getting laughed at. Right. Absolutely. I was like, I want to give someone some of those. No, but I I saw it, though, and and what I actually fell in love with from the sport was how it was taking these Olympic sports, the Olympic sport of wrestling, boxing, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well, and putting it into one sport. And so I looked at it. First thing that drew me to it was I bet these guys don't get bullied and they can defend themselves. Yeah, I bet they don't. Yeah, I bet they don't get bullied. They can defend themselves. They're probably not the laughing stock of the party. Maybe they're actually invited. Yeah, and then I just fell in love with the sport. It's like a human chess match, and I loved how strategic it was. And I think I saw through the bad marketing that they were doing at the time because whenever you see some of those fighters, how disciplined they are, this guy's an Olympic gold medalist or he's an Olympian. Like, he's not some knucklehead street fighter, barroom brawler, drinking a beer Yeah, fight. It like, seems like the original marketing back then, they were like, we need the wrestling crowd, except we want the wrestling crowd that's more adult and already knows that wrestling is scripted in some ways. And I don't want to say fake because it's real athleticism, but it's not real. It's entertainment. Striking. Yeah. But they need the adult version of that, which is always when you're a kid and you find out wrestling is fake, you're like, well, where's the real version? Right. So they marketed towards that. And the initial branding was drunk rednecks are going to love this. Right. It wasn't <laughs> like the whole world is going to be watching this stuff. Yeah. Then after that, got into wrestling, 15 years old. Man, I was just really fortunate. My two high school coaches were both Olympic gold medalists. They were instantly champs for Oklahoma State Wrestling, which is just like the best wrestling club ever. Yeah, it was Kenny Monday, Kendall Cross, learning from the best right from the start. And they just started, um, I was young, I was, uh, I would say almost fragile with going through the depression, going through the bullying. I had to transition out of the school I was at. My parents sent me from the public school to a private school to get me away from that. And then, yeah, these guys just invested in me. They saw a desire to want to learn, and they said, we can work with that. While you were still in high school, they were doing this? Yeah, absolutely. How did they find you? Through the wrestling team? Through the wrestling program? Yeah, Kenny Money and Kittle Cross were the high school coaches at the school. Gotcha. And so it's just very fortunate. There wasn't one other Olympic gold medalist at any high school coaching. Yeah, what are the odds? Yeah, and we had two at the same school. Jeez. And so uh, it was just a powerhouse. It was a Texas wrestling school, which Texas isn't known for wrestling. But theirs came to, or ours, Bishop Lynch High School. We were the best in the state, but then we were the second best in the country. And yeah, because we had great coaches and a lot of us were coachable and we'd listen. 
Go figure. Yeah. yeah. And then you ended up on Ultimate Fighter, the reality show. Yeah. Yeah. So out of high school, I went to the Olympic Training Center. And then from there, started battling drug addiction because I had this elbow surgery right here. Oh, yeah. That's a nice little scar you got. How did that happen? Uh, I was wrestling an Olympic bronze medalist world champion, and I was 18. He was like 30-something. Oh, um, that's safe. What could go wrong? <laughs> right. Yeah. And he was just uh, he was just great. But I was a two-time national champion in wrestling. I went out there, wanted to compete, wanted to test myself, and just in a freak accident, snapped my arm. It was a one-point move. It wasn't anything crazy. It was just the way that I fell. Yeah. And uh, broke oh, it, man. dislocated it, tore the ulnar collateral ligament. And then living at the Olympic Training Center, I wanted to be able to compete again. And the doctors were telling me I only had a 30 35% chance of competing again so what's going through your mind at that point like crap the only thing i like is yeah. now ruined this is the one thing that has given me a sense of purpose and identity growing up feeling worthless bullied to then going to wrestling having success finding friends on the wrestling team and then becoming successful at it the best in the country and then yeah wanting to pursue the olympics living at the olympic training center then all of a sudden they say you might not ever be able to do this again you only have a 30 to 35 percent chance of ever competing again man that that rocked me because uh, it sent me right back into that depression i yeah. think wrestling helped pull me out of it once the only thing i liked and was the only thing i was good at was maybe ripped away from me yeah, I spiraled right back into that depression. And I got hooked on narcotics really bad. The painkillers yeah. from the surgery? Yeah, so they wanted me to go to a, uh, mainly an ankle doctor who did knee surgeries for my elbow. We're talking about your elbow, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, and he had to petition with our insurance company and uh, even write letters, and we had to go to an appeal process so that I could get an actual elbow doctor to do my elbow surgery. I was going to say, where's the elbow doctor yeah, in all this? Exactly. So luckily, going through that process, I got the best guy in the country, one of them at least. But at that time, I had to wait four months. So during that four months, all they could give me was like yeah, oxy. pills. Yeah, just oh. pills. My ulnar collateral ligament was completely severed. What is that? It's, it's the inside. On so the inside. Basically, the surgery I had was the Tommy John surgery that a lot of the professional baseball pitchers get. And they took a tendon out of my hamstring. There's three like hamstring tendons. And they took one of those out, the center one, and they replaced my ligament and my elbow with it. So are you so, one tendon short on that side? Then? I am. Yeah. That doesn't sound safe either, though. Yeah. No, actually, they said it's the one that the other two will will strengthen up. And basically the doctor was telling me he was a good salesman, I guess. It was great because he was like, we could give you a cadaver, but you know, you're a big strong guy who wants to compete. We don't know how we're going to find that. So a <laughs> tendon is stronger than a ligament. So we'll put a leg tendon into your arm. So it'll be like you're kicking people in the face when you punch them. Oh yeah. So you got upgraded. Yeah. I got okay. upgraded. Yeah. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. 
and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So how did that then translate to you getting on the show? I think I jumped over that with the elbow injury. Yeah, so I started fighting 19 years old professionally. Once I was able to see I'm going to be able to compete again, I wanted to get paid to do this professionally Mm -hmm. because wrestling, there wasn't really an opportunity um, except for MMA was growing, really growing. And so that's where a lot of the wrestlers go. So yeah, I took my first pro fight at 19 years old. I was actually coaching. I wasn't even supposed to be in there. And my guy got hurt and couldn't compete. And so the day before, they threw me in there, ended up winning in about a minute and a half. That sounds horrifically ad-libbed and, or hodgepodge. or wi- yeah. Talk about winging it like, hey, your guy's injured. I don't know. The fight's tomorrow. Do you want to do it? Right. This was in Podunk, Oklahoma. Now they have a boxing commission there, state athletic commission, but they didn't at that time. It was yeah. unregulated. <laughs> um, second fight was kind of similar. The third fight was in Iowa at the Ames, Iowa, where Iowa State University is. It was their uh, county fairgrounds. Seems <laughs> legit. Yeah. And I was three beers in 
and I was in the stands just watching at a button down shirt and jeans on and dress shoes. And a guy gets in there and says, my opponent didn't show up. He weighed in yesterday, but he didn't come today. If there's anyone that's heavyweight, <laughs> wants to fight here. today, you know, raise your hand. We're looking for a big guy who's still not <laughs> too drunk that I can't walk and can fit into this pair of shorts. Right. This was back in the old school days. Not as old school where there weren't rules, but this was when it was still developing and taking off. Now it's more mainstream. It's regulated, everything else. But yeah, so it started getting much <laughs> better and I got on the Ultimate Fighter TV show which was my ultimate goal was to be in the UFC and so not the ultimate goal but one of the big goals in fighting you want to get there so you beat the guy who challenged you while you were in the stands? Yeah. Just thinking... That was my quickest fight ever, actually. You got, like, corn dogs in your belly, and you're like, <laughs> I can do it. Right. How hard can it be? I actually had to go backstage, borrow another fighter's shorts for that fight yeah. earlier. I had to get an unboiled, unfitted mouth, mouth guard, guard yeah. uh, from back there. One of the rules is you do have to wear a cup, and so... That's I, probably a good idea. Yeah, so you took this sweaty cup, cup from I, the other guy? Yeah, uh, I won't ever do that again. Yeah, your wife loves this story, doesn't she? <laughs> she like, take a shower before you get back in the car. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe it was motivation to get in and out because it was only about 16 seconds of uh, the fight. But after that, I decided, man, I, I think I can be good at this. I need to dedicate myself. Yeah. From there, I just started setting my my goals and what I wanted to do accomplish in the sport and as a person. And, and yeah, I started trying to rally around that. How did you kick the oxy habit after taking it for months and months? Um, I didn't. It was a six-year battle. So wow. It was a six-year addiction, and it started before my fight career did. So that was one of the main reasons for my five-year layoff from fighting was I got kicked off my fight team. I think I was 12-2 and two or 13-2, and two, and I was fresh off the Ultimate Fighter. I was the youngest heavyweight in the UFC. Everyone else was normally in their 30s, mid-30s, and I got on there at 21, 22. I had that opportunity, and even on the Ultimate Fighter, I was sneaking in pills. I was battling that addiction the whole time. Whenever I finally came through it, I was like, okay, I need to really set a firm foundation of like sobriety. And this life has always been about me. Uh, it's always been about what I want, which can be good if it's a positive outlet. But whenever it was just all about me and my significance and identity and self-worth came from my success as a fighter or as a wrestler, then it's a roller coaster ride of like, if you win, things are good. If you lose, things are terrible and awful. Right. And then, yeah, even if you win though, and you're battling an addiction, like now you have an excuse either way to use, you know, you want to celebrate, party, have fun. And then if you lose, you just want to numb yourself and forget that it ever happened. So you're fighting against the addiction, you're fighting against the ghosts of these bullies from your past. Essentially, you're fighting against yourself, your own mind at this point. And then you kick the addiction. Did you kick it cold turkey by just going to Congo? I mean, I'm trying to put the timeline together in my head. Yeah. So, man, I had tried different stuff, tried a little quietly, you know, tried to keep it under wraps. It's hard to do that with addictions that make you look sloppy or make yeah. your speech slur or make you pass out in your own Absolutely. spit. I would be there for my fights training. But then after they helped me get ready for a fight, they have a fight coming up. I would just disappear. I would go off on a six week, eight week long binge. Oh, man. One of those times, my best friend left me a voicemail. And on the other line, he said, I can't believe you missed my wedding. I can't believe my best oh, man, man. can't believe my best man didn't show up. And so I was just a hurt dude that was hurting people. I was jacked up. I basically broke every relationship that I ever had. A lot of them to where it was almost beyond repair, but I've been fortunate, you know, now, now things have really changed around. Yeah. It's been a learning process for sure. I'm still a work in progress. That's for sure. But yeah, it's been six years and 10 months and 15 days that the life has just kind of completely 
changed around. Did he ever forgive you for missing his wedding? Yeah, absolutely. That's we great. were actually texting uh, two days ago. Okay, because you hate to see something like that. Because weddings are important. I'm having one really soon as well. Yeah. But I think if my best man was hooked on a substance, I would be more worried about him than mm -hmm. pissed off. I mean, I'd be pissed, don't get me wrong. Right. But I'd be much more worried because your wedding is one day, but an addiction is hopefully not for the rest of your life, right? Yeah, and he was a great guy, supportive the whole time. But yeah, at that time in my life, all I saw was the dark cloud that I left over that special day of his. And so right after I heard that voicemail, I turned right back to the drugs. Of so, course, yeah, right. It yeah. had the opposite effect probably that in, intended. Right, absolutely. Yeah. So. so you're headlining in Vegas at 23. You're fighting against people. I mean, this is big time stuff. It's not just like the local... Yeah, this was the main event at the Hard Rock Casino in Vegas where the Ultimate Fighter getting 6.8 million viewers on average during that season. It was the biggest season of the Ultimate Fighter ever. And yeah, being able to fight guys that were the IFL champions or uh, Roy Big Country Nelson, who now has the um, one the Ultimate Fighter, lost a very controversial decision. Yeah, he's got the knockout of the night record in the UFC right now. So I was fighting some big name guys. Yeah, it's good to lose to somebody who goes on and just crushes it. Yeah. It sucks when you lose to somebody and they're like, Whatever happened to that guy that beat you? And you're like, yeah, he never never made it anywhere. Yeah. Then you just look like you're one rung below that schmuck, right? Right. You might as well lose to the really good fighter who's killing other people too. Right. Yeah. Tell me about the pygmy connection. How did you go from, all right, I'm going to fight, I'm going to be a pro athlete, to the jungles of the Congo? Yeah, so that was a crazy process, but I just wanted to get started doing something, something with my life worthwhile and so I started locally. A lot of times I get criticism, why do you go over there? Why don't you help here? It's like, man, well, if you have ever been there and seen the suffering that they have, it's, it's on another level. But I believe in helping here, there, and everywhere. And so that's what I started doing at the local juvenile detention center. Then I went through all the classes to become an official volunteer at the children's hospital. And then, so I just tried to look for places I could get involved. Homeless shelter, you know, serving meals and going there and hanging out with guys and seeing what I could do, what I would feel kind of called to that I could dedicate my life to. And so that was fun. It was great getting involved here. And I was trying to do something where not to put a system on it, but hey, I can do something every week. What can I do? And what can I start with? And I was like, I can do something every week locally. Maybe uh, I can do something once a month nationally, like look for something to get involved in. And then once a year, maybe I can go internationally and make a difference. And so that's how it kind of all started and developed. And then, man, it goes back to what really helped me with my sobriety and just changed my life, but just kind of my faith, personal life. I always have believed in visualization, just seeing the match in your mind before you ever go wrestle, see the fight in your mind before you ever go fight. The first two comeback fights, I wasn't doing that, and I suffered because of it. This third fight that you watched, I visualized that fight happening basically exactly the way it did. But this happened effortlessly. I just said, what do I do with my life? And I had this vision that just lit me up, basically had a movie in my mind. And uh, I saw myself in the forest. I was walking down a footpath. I didn't know where I was, but I get close and I hear this drumming and then I meet these people and I hear the singing. I get my heart just crushed once I met them where it was like, this is in your mind still. This is in my mind. Okay, because yeah, I'm sorry. thinking, what the hell are you doing in the jungle? <laughs> yeah. I thought that I was tripping out or had some sort of mental break. It or does laughs. sound a little bit like yeah, LSD at absolutely. work. Absolutely. And man, dude, I've experimented with plenty of psychedelics. <laughs> and it was similar to that, but this was more real and more vivid. It was just natural or kind of effortless where, yeah, I saw these people that had their ribs poking out. I knew that they were hungry. I knew that they were thirsty. They didn't have clean water, that they were poor and sick. And I knew that they were slaves, like that they had been enslaved by people. And I didn't know what was going on. 
But like the thing that struck me was that they felt forgotten. Dude, I, I cried a puddle of tears this big. And I've never done that before, but I was like hyperventilating, crying when I came out of the vision, felt nuts for three days, didn't know what to do with it, right. but I wrote it down. Yeah. You're like, I don't know who I should tell about this because I'm just starting to get yeah. my shit together. Yeah. It's even weird to talk about now, to be honest, but because of what's happened since it's given me a little more confidence to share it. But yeah. I mean, there's crazy stuff that happens, you know, and this was the craziest thing because I could have never dreamed this. I didn't know who the pygmies were right, or where the Congo was. And so, uh... Three days later, I told a friend of mine, actually, I just met him. His name was Caleb. And I knew he was friends with like Bear Grylls and Man vs. Wild. And oh, yeah. All those crazies. Guy, right? yeah, yeah. So I'm like, if there's a guy I could tell, uh, maybe it's him and he won't think I'm too crazy. And if he does, oh, well. And then I won't tell anyone again. Right, yeah. Lesson yeah. learned. Right. Lesson learned. And so he said, those are the pygmies. And I said, what? Who? And he goes, they're yeah. in the Congo. And I'm like, what? Where? I didn't know they were still a real group of people. Right. I thought it was something from like an old movie or a fairy tale yeah. or something. Oh, well, I mean, they were supposed to be the in the original book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah. The original text, the book, instead of Oompa Loompas, it was the Pygmies. Willy Wonka was kind of a dark character where wasn't very kind and nice. And, and yeah, the Pygmies were slaves. Anyways, yeah, so I, I didn't know who they were. I don't know. He told me that and he goes, man, I went last year. I met them. Those are the people you say forgotten. That's them. How did he meet them? He was just doing it. He went on like a scouting trip. So this guy goes all over the world and does good and humanitarian effort and missions work. And so he's like, man, you want to go meet them? Come with me. Then I found out he was taking a team of three other guys uh, who all backed out because the rebels had taken over the airport. It's chaos in Congo. They did a failed state study and they said that Congo is the only country that should be considered a non-state, that is just the wild, wild west. And this was, I think, backed by Oxford. It was a uh, South African university that did the study. And there's 38 different warring rebel groups uh, east Congo. Well, you got, That's like, where we're going. Minerals, uh, elements like coltan, you got uh, diamonds. Gold. And then you've got just lumber, which is also valuable, yeah, which really is hard. Really rare to... at hardwoods like mahogany and uh ebony and uh, just different stuff out there that is really dense, heavy hardwoods that are really rare and expensive. And so, yeah, the deforestation there is crazy. I think they said in the last 20, 25 years, since they started getting all the mechanical chainsaws and everything out there, that the size of Texas has been deforested. Oh, in the man. Continent. So just brutal. The town that our team, our well drillers are based in, that used to be the rainforest. Now it takes six hours to get to the rainforest. That's so tragic yeah. and sad. But that whole country is kind of one long, sad story, story yeah. with no yeah. happy ending yeah. so far. Yeah, absolutely. Ever since uh, even King Leopold II, there's a great book called King Leopold's Ghost. And it talks about that that was the African Holocaust where Congo at the time had about 20 million in population at least eight, but up to 10 million people were killed during the time that the Belgians came, colonized. Ugh. And that was because of the rubber boom and ivory. And so they came there and just completely destroyed the country. And it's the most rich country on the planet. They should be the most developed probably because of all their riches. Right. And they're the most underdeveloped. That's kind of the whole story of yeah. much of Africa, though, is right. look at all these natural resources and ancient technology. And now they still have nothing. Yeah. I mean, they don't even have water. Unless, yeah, unless you've, except for the villages where you've been, they don't have water. Right. So I think it's around 1% of people have access to clean water. There's 74 million people in Congo. Think about how huge that is. When you look at Africa on a map, it just looks like this hodgepodge of random places that are indistinguishable. Right. And to have 74 million people there, what is that? Like almost a third of the United States. Right. It's huge, man. And even if you look up, just Google the real size of Africa, you'll see how huge Africa is. You can fit the whole United States in there, plus India, plus China and Japan. And like, I think it's 
Eastern or Western Europe, you can fit that all in the continent of Africa. It's massive. It's huge. And it's just small on maps because we don't really need to look at the detail. Right. Right. And so it's wow. crazy how, how big it actually is. And Congo is massive and it should be so rich. But yeah, it's just brutal to see people living in those circumstances. The first time I went, it just, it rocked me because I wasn't prepared for it. I never planned to go to Africa for any reason. Right, you just showed up because somebody, a couple guys bailed on the trip and he's like, hey, do you want to go? And right. it's like, yeah, sure. How hard can it be to travel in the Congo? Yeah. And man, we went and all of a sudden we're walking down a footpath and we get close and we hear drumming and then we hear singing. I get in there and I meet these people and there's these sick people that their ribs are poking out, they're hungry, they're, they have tuberculosis and meet the chief and just like something hit me to where the first day I met him, I was crying. I had to walk away so that they didn't like yeah. look at this crazy Freaking thing. out. The Vikings crying. <laughs> What's happening right now? In that village, they actually kind of ran and hid because they had never seen anyone with white skin before, or light skin there. And, well, uh, yeah, who hasn't tried to shoot them or something and take something from them maybe, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really remote. Caleb's goal was to do a scout trip to see the actual worst, and then that way we can work from there up. And so kind of backwards, but there's even a viral video that was on like Jimmy Kimmel and the Today Show and all this of some of the kids from a nearby town seeing me for the first time, them all rubbing my beard and my hair and my arms because I have crazy hairy arm, arm hair. hair. Yeah. And they don't have that there. Yeah, but they ran, hid behind trees whenever I came in there. I think uh, me being a big guy, bearded, I got the hair that might look like a lion's mane or maybe I look like a vanilla gorilla, uh, <laughs> but walking through the forest. Vanilla gorilla is not a bad fight name okay. if you ever need a fallback. Okay, there we go. <laughs> It wrecked me in a way hearing that they don't have a voice, hearing that they are the first citizens of Congo and that they have no land of their own. They've never owned land legally. It's all been taken from them. And then developing relationships where it wasn't like show up, blow up and blow out of there or here we're going to give you a bunch of handouts like, hey, we're actually here to listen and learn and actually live with you for a little bit. And then the next trip was like, I need to go live with them more to understand. Like, it's one thing to, to read about it. It's another thing to see it. And it'll last with you when you see it. But um, it can go in and out of one ear when you read it. But whenever you live it, whenever you develop the relationships, whenever you suffer from some of the sickness or some of the hunger or, you know, not having clean water, having to boil your water, having to, to use filters that then break that are supposed to last for thousands of gallons, but only last for a few days out there. And then the second trip, man, living with them. Uh, it was like my third to last day. It was a one and a half year old named Andy Bo uh, that actually passed away. I was holding him and uh, buried him. And it just absolutely tore me open and ripped my heart apart. And uh, like it would, I think anyone, but not knowing that kiddos are dying of dirty water every day, that 800 a day died just because of diarrhea from the dirty water. And then another 2,350 children every day are dying just because of malnutrition from the dirty water. so Because they can't absorb the they nutrients. They can't absorb the nutrients. And Jeez. so it just, it wrecked me, man. And I came back and I'm like, you know what? It was something that I wanted to do, but in a way that was different than the model that I had seen over there at that time, at least. Saw a lot of handouts, but it was like, isn't there a way to give them a hand up? Isn't there a way to empower them to where if we have all the equipment to drill wells and if I can go to my kitchen sink and my shower and my toilet has clean water, I can give my dog clean water, and my grass has clean water, can't someone give them the tools to where they can do it themselves. Like that's what they need is the tools in their hands, a job that they can have, be proud of, go out there and do it for themselves to where they don't have to sit back and wait for the West to come in or the government to come in or an NGO or a church or anything. Like they can do it for themselves. It's that whole difference, you know, either give a man a fish or teach him how to fish. Right, right. You, know, you can feed him for a day or feed him for a lifetime. That was something that I, I realized, like, man, charity 
can be great, but opportunity is always better. And I saw charity hurting people, crippling them. A lot of the communities that got these handouts, they didn't even want it. Like they would take it because it was available right there. And the ones that learned to take it and learned just over and over, like it's almost like they would develop a dependence mentality of, hey, when these people come, we are dependent on them. Their markets are crashed from our foreign aid. Right, because we just completely subsidize all the stuff. So they can't yeah. grow their own stuff because we're giving away yeah. free corn or rice Absolutely. or whatever. They can't compete. How can they compete with American-grown rice or from China or India that is free or the market, it's cheaper than what they can produce themselves. And so it puts all these farmers out of business, depletes the crops that are out there. I mean, it's so jacked up the way that aid has been done and charity has been done. And there's a better way. And there's a more sustainable way. Even some of the, the social entrepreneurship is really big right now. And I love it. I love the heart behind it. And even charity, the heart is good. The intent is good. Yeah, I don't think they're like, let's crash these motherfuckers' markets right. right now. Let's give them a bunch of free stuff and ruin their lives. Right. It's like Oprah, you get a car, you get a car. And they say like, we couldn't afford the taxes on the car. And it's like, oh, that was totally not the idea behind giving away cars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how do we do it in a, even social entrepreneurship to where the whole buy one, give one, that can be really good if it's when you give one, you're actually giving one by creating jobs in their country to where then they get to make it themselves and sell it themselves. And then they get to put money in their pockets or put their kids into school or buy some food or, or invest in themselves. But if you just buy one here and then you go over there and you just give it away, now you're hurting the guy. If you do that with shoes, you know, you're hurting the cobbler, the shoe salesman. But yeah, so it's just how do you do it in a way that is more appropriate for the people there, their country, their context, their culture to where it makes a long lasting impact. I heard this thing where someone was saying that the short-term disasters around the world, oftentimes because of the foreign aid, turns into a worse long-term disaster. Sure. I can see that because of the things we just mentioned, markets yeah. crashing. And if the farmers go out of business instead of being temporarily bolstered by the aid, then as soon as the aid dries up, they're like, oh, crap, now we can't even grow food. We don't even have people doing this. Yeah. How did you end up there for a year? You went once and then you just went, I'm going to pack a backpack and live in a hut? I went there twice beforehand for about a month and stayed and lived with them. And that's the second time was when Andy Bo happened. And I was just like, you know what? I came back and I was in, my parents had some land, like two or three acres. And I was at Home Depot and I was on a website. Don't go try to drill a well this way, but it's how to drill your own well.org. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll link to that just so you know what not to do. <laughs> yeah. And so I was getting parts from Home Depot and trying to see if I could just go drill it myself and then go over there and teach them how to do it. First off, I didn't think I was going to be able to fundraise for a half a million dollar or a million dollar drilling rig. And then the roads that you go on, I mean, it's dangerous. There's rebel groups, the bridges collapse, and then the villages are in the trees, I mean, in the forest. And so how do you drive a truck out there? You don't, right? Yeah, you don't. It's just not possible. And so where the most need was, it wasn't possible to do it in the standard way. So we got to be able to have these tools that we can hike into the forest. And so luckily I came across an organization called Water 4 uh, that we partnered with, our nonprofit initiative, Fight for the Forgotten. We told them what we wanted to do, that our vision was to empower the locals, that I already had over those two trips, found some great guys. We had four guys that were just outstanding. They're just w sitting there waiting for the opportunity. They're all college educated with community development degrees. Some of them were working at the market selling meat, and another guy was selling SIM cards. These are guys that were just had great hearts that loved the people we wanted to serve, but they needed an opportunity to have a job to do it. And so it was just really cool how Waterford trained me up to go over there to train them up. And then, yeah, it's been 
really awesome to see it take off where in that year that I was there, I mean, I helped drill the first 13 water wells. But now the next year when I came back, people think like when you leave, a lot of the charity mindset is if I leave, it's going to all fall apart. Yeah. Well, it will if it's dependent on you. Right. So you got to teach them how to fish. Right. Exactly. Right. And so the next year, I did have some fears and insecurities or just, are we sure that they're going to be able to do it? Not really, because they're so rock solid, but still, you want to be part of it and you want to be a big part of it. And so I went from almost a leader to, I guess I could say cheerleader, you know, like I went from showing them how to do it to then being in the background and cheering them on, saying, you can do this. And yeah, they were able to crank out 20 water wells the next year. This last year, they did 29. And so we're up to 62 which has just been incredible. 3,000 acres of land for the Mabuti Pygmies. They have land of their own. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you buying the land with them, for them, from the state or from those other tribes or something? Right. Absolutely. From both. From either like land that doesn't have titles on it that we could relocate them to or from the locals there that benefits them for selling the land. And so it actually helps both sides of the community to where we buy land back that is legally in the name of the pygmies so that they have land for the first time. They get to go live on it. They get to have clean water both sides. And then we get to come in with a farming initiative to where they're able to learn to grow their own food for the pygmies for the first time. And now in Babofi, they're able to go to the market and they weren't able to make it there the first couple of times, but they have their own banana trees and their own cornfields and they had surplus. They couldn't eat it all and didn't have a place to store it really. So they go to the market and on the roadside, people are all buying it from them on their way there. So it's really cool to see what they've been able to do from that 
make money and invest in themselves, you know, be able to buy clothes for their kids and be able to send them to school. It's the first time the pygmies in that area or maybe ever in Congo have been in school paying their own school fees and everything else. So it's just been kind of transformative what water can do. Water changes everything. So you're drilling these wells. How deep is the water? How deep do you have to drill? Uh, It's different, but in the rainforest, it's not as deep as some of the parts of the world, but 60 to 90 feet deep is our sweet spot. Okay, that's much more shallow because it looks like in some of the videos, it's a glorified coffee can picking up this light colored clay out of a hole that's, I don't know, maybe a little bit thinner than a telephone pole. Yeah. And they're just going in and up and in and up and in and up. And it must just take 10 to 12 inches at a time. How long does it take? Weeks? Days? In some of the countries that water fours in, they can do three, five, seven days and drill a new well. Us in the Congo, because of the circumstances and, and it being in the rainforest and getting out there and going really deep and hiking everything in. Sometimes we're just to get from the truck out to the forest, it can be an hour hike, two hour hike, three hour hike to unload our equipment. So to take it in and come back and pick it back up and can be a six hour round trip to the truck. Oh man. Um, so it takes 10 to 16 days in the Congo to yeah. drill. It's obviously well worth it. So you're drilling these water wells in each village and how many people live in a village and how close are these villages to one another? It all really varies, but the average Mabuti Pygmy village is anywhere from 85 to 150 people, but all of ours are more around 300 because there's just more opportunity there. More opportunity to help more people with a single well. Right. right. And they have land ownership for the first time. And so some of the chiefs are saying, you know, my grandchildren are going to be able to say this was my grandfather's mm-hmm. land to their children and grandchildren. And so the pygmies have been semi-nomadic. You know, they are hunter-gatherers, so they travel around. But whenever they had the opportunity to get land for the first time, they just settled. It's been great to see. But water's not the only problem. I mean, they're enslaved by another tribe yeah. or other tribes in general? Yeah, so not just one tribe, but we could just say the Makpala, which means the non-pygmies in the pygmy language. Oh, I thought, these these bastards. Yeah. This tribe is all enslaved, but that just yeah. means like outsider. Yeah. Okay, um, gotcha. Basically, because we don't want to villainize one tribe. There's over 200 tribes in the Congo, and there's several that are doing it. But then some of those tribes are outside of the Congo where the pygmies don't even live. And so if we say these are the people doing it, you know, the people in Uganda or Kenya or... Rwanda. Some guy in New York's like, bro, yeah. I've never had a slave, I yeah. swear. Never even met right. a pygmy. They're not even in our country. Exactly. Um, so we just go with what the pygmies say, which is non-pygmies. And that was a process. And, and we've been able to help 10 villages in that way. So we've drilled 62 wells, but only 10 of them, we've been able to see like a peaceful, pretty awesome transition that's even being sponsored now uh, by the local governor of that state. That's like, man, we need the pygmies to have their own land for the first time. So we're coming in on the local, state, and national level and sponsoring this. And so we have all the legal documents where we come in and, and yeah, buy back the land for the pygmies, but it's in their name. They get to pass it down from generation to generation. And so we've seen about over 1,500 people transition out of a life of slavery and into a life of freedom, but then they're able to go back and still work for them, but now it's for pay instead of just for scraps. Speaking of pay, you're throwing your fight purse, if they still call it that, to what, land and wells? Uh, land, water, and food initiatives in the Congo. So, so. when you fight, talk about finding purpose, yeah. that's a big task. Yeah. So instead of spending it on oxy, you're spending it on a well. More rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Much better outlet. And basically a fighter gets a show amount and a win amount. And so the show amount we live off of and the win amount we give. So it's about 50-50. And I just love that. And the sponsors that I have, we've transitioned everything to where it's like, hey, you want to sponsor me? Let's sponsor Mm. Wells. Which is better for them, right? Because they can maybe write some of that off and then maybe give a little bit more instead of... 
paying for some shorts. Yeah. And so I'm learning on the business side of things. And that's what we do in the Congo startup social enterprise where, you know, they get to have their own business and they're their own boss and have employees and it can run, you know, by itself. It doesn't need us. If something happens to me in the ring, right, they're going to be able to keep doing this work. I was amazed when I heard there were 27 million slaves in the world. Yeah. That was shocking because I thought, first of all, when you said in the video that I watched, all these people are enslaved, I thought, wow, that must be like the only slavery left anywhere in the middle of the jungle. But then you said there's 27 million slaves. And I thought, where the hell are these people? Yeah. What's going on? How is that even possible? Yeah, so all around the world, that stat takes from, you know, even sex trafficking, but India and China and all over the place where they're, you know, working in the uh, the mines and the quarries. Quarries, yeah. Yeah, but I've seen that with my own eyes in Congo and the gold mines, the diamond mines, the coltan, which is in yeah. the smartphones and everything else. But yeah, isn't that nuts that there's more slaves today than ever in human history on Earth? Which is shocking. Yeah. Because you think... Gee, when there were slaves in Europe or slaves in the United States, imagine how many slaves there were in America when we had slavery. It's a huge right. country. Now there are actually more, even though it's been abolished. Anywhere with cell phones, pretty much, right? Anywhere with electricity, you're thinking, oh, they don't have slaves there. Right. But it's not true. Yeah. Africa's loaded. And Asia. Africa's loaded. Asia's loaded. India's loaded. Um, and even the countries that condemn it, it's still going on silently, and they just make sure that they don't highlight that it's going on in their right. country. So, Does that count? just really crappy business arrangements. Like I know there's a lot of Filipino guest workers in Saudi Arabia that are basically slaves, only they're allowed some pittance. I think it does include indentured Economic slavery or whatever. Yeah, yeah, indentured but, servitude. But it's whenever you're not getting paid. It's whenever you have no control, no power, all the power is taken out of your hands and your only way to survive is to be a slave for this person. How does the clean water intersect with the slavery issue? Yeah, so that's been really... Great. We didn't even really see it coming, but whenever we sit with a community, listen to their needs, brainstorm together, include them in on that process to where they really feel a part of the initiative, of the change in their own community, like they had a say. It wasn't us coming in and saying, we have the answer, get out of the way, we're going to do this for you. It was, hey, let's come up with a solution together. We say Tamika Pamoja in Swahili, which basically means uh, let's work together on this. And so um, both sides, the Makpala and the Pygmies, the non-Pygmies and the Pygmies, the slave masters and the slaves were both suffering so much from not having clean water. I mean, I've been to three funerals of the little guys that actually seen and held and everything else, Loandi, Bo, Babo, and Siku. Yeah, I've been to about five or seven funerals total, which were of the slave master kids the people with the power that actually were making money. But the thing is that they only make about a dollar twenty-five per day. And so there's these people that do have all the power because they're the slave master, but they're suffering immensely. They're incredibly impoverished. So how do we come alongside them? Actually sitting down with one of the slave masters who was also the chief in this one village that worked with us, he said, maybe for my grandfather, this arrangement was very beneficial to him. To my father, too, but it started to take a real shift and turn of events to where now it's become, you know, how do I feed my own family on a dollar twenty-five a day, and then how do I take care of these other people? Right, so it seems like they had slaves so that they could essentially get by on the pittance that they had, but if you solve the water issue, it sort of demilitarizes the arrangement where it's like, look, you know, you can support yourself, you'll have clean water, you'll survive. The condition is you stop picking on these folks. Yeah, absolutely, and so it's all agreed upon to where They know how much they're suffering without clean water whenever their wives or their daughters who they can't send to school, even if they had the money to pay, they can't send 
their little girl to school because she needs to go collect water. Oh, that's and horrible. So walking 3.75 miles is the average walk for a woman in Africa to go collect water. Most times it's dirty. And so almost all times it's dirty. So you're walking a round trip, 3.75 miles. With a can of water. Minimum of one time a day, but normally two to three times a day. And this is a 20-liter jerry can or two 20-liter jerry cans, which whenever that five gallons is filled is 44 pounds. So these women and children are walking. Who are four foot five or whatever. absolutely. Are walking this long walk. And even the Makpala, who are average-sized people, they're walking this walk with them. And so being able to come in there and say, hey, we can end this walk. There's over a billion work days every year that are lost because of the water walks that women have to do. And so the time that they spend doing that, when you come into a community and you're able to solve that problem, they are freed up in so many ways to focus their time and energy on things that are important. And so because they recognize that, that their suffering is going to end in so many ways, and they're going to be freed up to focus on what's important uh, instead of just going and making sure you can survive that day by drinking this dirty water and hope that it doesn't give you typhoid or E. coli or cholera or some kind of intestinal parasite that can slowly kill you. You know, it's a game changer. So what's the real estate market like in the jungle in the Congo? (laughs) Yeah, so it's varying. But if we wanted to buy it in our name, this is another reason we wanted to do it in the best way for the people. But then also the most logical way on the government kind of level, it was going to be hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions for us as a nonprofit to go buy land and hold those papers. We were working with a local university and we wanted them to almost be the caretakers, but that was still going to be really expensive. But whenever we bought it in the name of a people and the name of a tribe, that is the most respected way to do it in Congo. It's the thing that stands up in court the most. It's the most powerful thing to do because they get to pass it down from generation to generation that way. So, man, it brought down our acre cost to hundreds of dollars per acre. So Really? Yeah. You can buy whole farms for less than the price of a frigging jacket. Yeah. For a laptop computer. Yeah, absolutely. That's but, unreal. But, but if you do it for the people, it's not for you to come in there and do it for yourself. Right. They, you not going to put a McDonald's there. Right, exactly. Yeah. With the longstanding relationships with the people, if they trust you, because it takes a while to build up the trust with the locals in the community, for them to see that, you know, that it's truly for their best interest is what our heart is. And that we're not coming in there, you know, even having well drilling equipment. You saw the equipment. It looks like you could be going for gold or diamond or coltan. Yeah. And so to prove to them that, you know, people watching, are they really looking for minerals or are they really helping us with water? It's like once they see that they're really getting the water, trust starts to build. I would imagine word starts to travel, though. Like, no, they dug well for this guy. They dug a well over there. They dug a well over there. Yeah. And it's helped spread. And our biggest advocates are Chief Leome and Chief Alondo, who were the first two pygmy chiefs to buy in. And now we get to take them to the other villages or other villages come to them and ask whenever we're not around, you know, hey, did this really work? And they're like, hey, we were a part of the process from the beginning to the end of all the development, the community development. We were included in on that process. Do they have their own language or you speak Swahili? So they have their own language. It's a local language. And then they speak Swahili, but the national language is French. Well, they have five national languages. And so there's a a funny quote that is, uh, Swahili was born in Tanzania. It got sick in Kenya. It died in Uganda and it was buried in the Congo. And so they can't even communicate with each other from Congo to Tanzania, really. It's just everything's lost in translation. What is the pygmy language that you're speaking in the beginning where you say hi to your peeps over there? Yeah, so that's just a really broken Swahili. Okay. Yeah, I'm basically saying, Chiniango, 
Efeosa Mabutimangbo. Basically, what I'm saying is, hey, my name is, everyone there calls me Efeosa, my family in the tribe, which means the man who loves us. But then Mabutimangbo means uh, the big pygmy. And gotcha. so that's what everyone else calls me. <laughs> and then I say, hey, I'm in here because I love you. Whenever I'm, you know, after the fight, I say that. And then Amagu Amagu basically means we are one, we are not different. I love that saying, you know, we're one, we are not different. I'm a goo, I'm a goo. Yeah, there's just so much beautiful stuff. Even their Swahili proverbs, you know, they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Or they say, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep in a closed room with a mosquito. And there's just so many things that are encouraging about their culture. I've learned so much. I've grown so much. I've become a better person. I've discovered a life that I can live that's bigger than me. I get to add value to my life, but to the lives of others. And whenever you do good for them, it actually comes back and, and makes you feel really good. And it's helped me stay straight, you know, from my sobriety. And so, yeah, it's kind of weird because you're doing it all hopefully with the heart and intention to truly help them. But at the same time, you're helping yourself. And so it's a beautiful circle whenever you do it in a way that's slow and steady and strategic to not get too big for your britches, to not walk all over them and say, okay, we got this thing now. I know how to do it. Here's the blueprint. Here's the cookie cutter solution. And then think that that's going to work from this village to that village. You know, you got to go in there and spend the time, take the time to listen to them and learn. When you showed up in the jungle and you're like, I'm going to stay here for a year, how did you arrange that? I can't really imagine you went, hey, I'm going to build one of these little huts over here and I'll see you guys every single day for the next 365 days. <laughs> it was similar to that. We found the team and we were like, hey, if we come in with this well drilling equipment, they already went to work on the land. It looked like we were going to be able to secure that deal if we were actually be able to bring in some development, some water and some food initiatives, maybe even housing down the line. It came about just saying, hey, I'll go all in if this is working. It started to develop in a way that, that we went. We went with like $15,000 of well drilling equipment there and uh, $50,000 of funds to hopefully drill uh, 12 water wells. We made the 13 there. But yeah, there were a lot of challenges along the way, a lot of sickness. Yeah. Did you get sick? Yeah, I did with uh, malaria three times. I Yikes. wish it was only once or none. Yeah, the first time I had malaria, it was brutal because... I got so sick. I was vomiting red and green eventually, which was blood and bile. Oh, good. Um, yeah. I, I've never seen those things, so right. knock uh, on wood. It doesn't smell good either. Sorry for those listeners. That's gross. <laughs> yeah, so it's gross. disgusting. But uh, yeah, this little mosquito almost knocked me out for good. I lost 33 pounds in five days. Jeez. I lost my peripheral vision completely. It was like tunnel vision. The rest was completely blurry. It sounded like I had a bee's hive in my ears constantly. My fever would spike up to over 103, and then it would plummet down to 96 something. Uh, and yeah, 65 to 70 percent of my bloodstream were parasites from the malaria. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, and so it was basically I was almost in a coma whenever I landed in Uganda. So they got you out of there somehow. Yeah, they got me out of there. Even when I left, three or four different doctors were arguing. One doctor was saying he does have malaria, but all the other ones were saying, "But it's not showing up on the test." Turns out the quick tests they were using uh, were expired and some different stuff. Oh, man. So, yeah, I, I went off to Uganda, found out there, and there was just a great doctor uh, actually named Dr. Happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that took care of ironically. me. Ironically? Yeah, ironically. And it did make me happy that she was a great doctor and was able to take care of me. They, they see malaria there so much that they're specialists in treating it. So as long as you aren't in that coma, they're able to normally bring it back. So what do they do? They just give you a bunch of pills and an IV? Uh, an IV uh, constantly around the clock and they had doctors working on me for I 
think it was at least three days giving me the IVs, but I think it was five days. And it took me two or three weeks to be able to start eating kind of whole food again because I was basically drinking juice the whole time and eating smushed up bananas because my esophagus was raw from that oil and everything else. So it was brutal, man. I mean, I, I've I've got a little scar here. I don't know if you can see that right oh, yeah, there. Yeah, a little brown yeah. patch on your skin. Yeah, that was from a scorpion out there. It stung me. Gross. It was in the middle of the night, got up, got out of the hut. Because, yeah, we want to live exactly the way they, they live. Right. So that we have this heart connection of like, hey, we're on the same level. We're looking eye to eye with you. We understand. Um, or at least we're trying. We're truly trying to understand. And yeah, this uh, I got up in the middle of the night. It was just in the moonlight and kicked up some leaves while I was taking a leak. And uh, the scorpion got me. But the chief got up and rallied the troops. And they went and found the leaves and I think roots, not the poison, but the kind they mashed up. Right. And were able to put on there and it was starting to suck out or draw out the venom or the poison out of me. And man, I had broke out in a fever. My teeth were chattering. I was oh, not man. in a good place. My joints were aching. But they were able to put that on there and it actually started to pull that back out of me. It seems like it would be so uncomfortable to be in a situation like that for a year. Scorpions, fevers. How long does the malaria fever last? Man, it's different. The last two times, I think because I was lucky to survive the first one, the last two times have, have been, I wouldn't say mild, but a whole lot better than that first one. So the first one was brutal. I actually forgot to say I, I didn't urinate for a full five days, and I had something called black water fever. And so it's basically where your kidneys are failing, liver is oh, failing, man. and it looks like darker than black coffee uh, uh. whenever you finally do get to urinate and get that release. Oh, um, man. So it was brutal, but the last two times weren't so bad. Um, I've had intestinal bacterias and parasites and all this stuff. But, you know, in that moment, even the first time I got it, I was almost in a weird way thankful for the opportunity to understand what they go through all the time. And so it just allowed me to have another set of compassion or empathy or understanding and be like, man, like this sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No and kidding. There's got to be a solution. There's got to be an answer. So now when you fight in Vegas and the shower it takes too long to warm up, you're like, hey, no big deal. Yeah. It's all right <laughs> if the power's off or whatever. It's it's pretty good. So if people want to get involved with the charity and check that stuff out, check out your YouTube videos. We'll link to that in the show notes. But what if they want to dig a well in Congo? Yeah. I mean, we are absolutely open to that. And that's at fightfortheforgotten.org. There's all the information right there. The transformation to bring in not just the water well, but employ the people there and then also do the wash program. That's around $4,200. But to make it a bite-sized amount, $25 a month, that changes the lives of 15 people throughout the course of a year. Well, they'll have clean water for the rest of their lives. That's crazy. Yeah. We get to empower the locals, not just to drill it, but also be able to repair it if anything happens. Well, thanks for doing what you're doing and thanks for coming on the show today, man. Hey, thank you for having me, man. Love the podcast. That was a super interesting show. The stories are incredible. The fact that he just went to the jungle for a year and decided, I'm going to live in a little hut and make these people my family is really funny. And if you want to look up Justin's videos on YouTube, they're worth it. The kids and the pygmy people are just really cute and endearing, and he's so much bigger than them. He's literally twice the size of a lot of these people. Great big thank you to Justin for coming by today and doing that. He's got a book. We'll link that in the show notes, and most importantly, we'll link to a lot of these videos that we talked about during the show in the show notes as well, including the fight that he had, his comeback, one of his comeback fights here with an awesome speech at the end. And it's a short one. He made short work of his opponent in that one. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Justin on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. I'd love it if you'd tweet at me your number one takeaway from Justin Wren. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. And remember, if you want those show notes, you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes for this episode. And we'll link to the show notes right on your phone. 
If you're interested in our live programs, our AOC boot camps, that's at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Join thousands of other guys who've been through the program who'll become your network for life. All around the world, we've had people backpacking through Europe, working at Art of Charm, meeting up when traveling, couch surfing, even gotten jobs and formed lifelong friendships. And frankly, the growth that people experience during and mostly after the boot camp is astounding and amazing. And it's just one of the best parts of running the show and the company here. That's theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And also, if you want to dip your toes in the water, join the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Or you can text the word CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. And, of course, we'll send you the Fundamentals Toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, having great nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, persuasion and mentorship, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and of course, a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444 here in the States. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Theme music by Little People, transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth really is everything. So, share the show with friends and enemies, stay charming, and as they say in Swahili... Achakila Kitu Musuri Goliko Oyokuta. In other words, leave everything and everyone better than you found them. <laughs>